electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. The 10-year yield crossing 5% for the first time since 2007. We've jumped a full point now since early August. Chair Powell saying monetary policy isn't too restrictive yet, but is that five handle enough to take more hikes off the table? We'll ask a five-star bond fund manager about that and where he's putting money to work. And while Powell is keeping his options open, the Philly Fed's Patrick Harker says the Fed should stop hiking. The Main Street issues that have him worried coming up. Plus, with yields hovering at those 16-year highs, technology is under pressure again today. We'll tell you what the options market is saying about the big names, including Microsoft, Amazon, and Alphabet, that are all reporting next week. First, though, let's hit today's market action. Dom Chu, welcome back. How's it looking? It's looking pretty red right now, although off of the worst levels of the day. But it's still notable right now, as you point out, that technology is leading the way lower here. The Nasdaq Composite's off about 105 points, three-quarters of 1%, 13,082, spot 56 the Dow Industrial is the outperformer, if you want to call it that, only down about one quarter of 1%, 93 points, 33,320. The S&P 500 is kind of where the rubber is meeting the road today. It's currently sitting at 42.53, down about 24 points. It's roughly one half of 1%. It's been a predominantly down day. We were down two points, even at the highs of the session, but down 48 points at the lows of the day so far. So in between that range. But remember, watch that level. 42.33 is what some traders are watching right now. That represents the 200-day moving average, that kind of average price on a longer-term rolling basis for the S&P. Could be an area of support, maybe not, but it's a level some traders are watching. Keep an eye on that. Elsewhere in the market, Transportation stocks in focus. We had CSX and Night Swift out overnight. Some fundamental stories with regard to earnings driving that trade. But generally speaking, this transports trade has been very weak over the last several months. At the kind of peak that we saw back in July right here, the gap between the Dow Industrials and the Dow Jones Transportation Index stood here at roughly about 16 to 17 percent. It has since converged, you can kind of see here, to where we are right now, just about 4.5% difference between 5.5% difference between the two of them. So is that transportation trade perhaps an indicator of things to come? That remains to be seen. Some traders are watching that. And then an interesting macro side of things here, picture move. Gold prices have caught a safety bid. Maybe no surprise there, given the Middle East tensions. You can kind of see on a relative basis that slight uptick here in gold prices. But what's interesting is Bitcoin prices. They've kind of moved out above a near-term trading range that we've kind of been in over the last several months, this being propelled in some ways by some optimism from Coinbase's chief financial officer that the SEC and regulators will eventually have to kind of greenlight some of these Bitcoin ETF-related applications and ETFs. So watch Bitcoin prices, watch gold. Is Bitcoin possibly the new safety trade? I'm not sure, Kelly, but there are some interesting moves happening with both Bitcoin 
and gold, digital versus the other stuff. We'll send things back. And Dom, just before I let you go, 4233 on the S&P? 4233 is that so-called 200-day moving average. We'll keep a close eye on that. All right. Thank you, Dom Chu. Let's dive in on that 10-year yield topping 5% for the first time since July 2007. We're about nine basis points off there now. It happened around 5 p.m. Eastern yesterday before pulling back somewhat. Let's turn to Rick Santelli for more on the moves in yields. Rick, you can take this wherever it needs to go. Well, I think the best way is to, first of all, let's take a short view. If you look at an intraday of twos, you can clearly see that it has been moving down in yield. And if you pair it with yesterday, what I want you to notice is how we're doing so much work well below yesterday's low yields and realize that yesterday we had a higher high and a lower low yield than the previous day. That's called an outside session, and it usually means trend reversal, which really is exactly what's going on. And if you look at a 10-year, look at the intraday, it's um, pretty much moving lower recently in the last couple hours, the short end lead yields down. Now, if you open it up to a two-day, we almost have an identical range to yesterday. Why is that so important? It's important because geopolitical issues are making a flight to safety. And even though long maturities, of course, have come down in yield, many traders were nervous to move down the curve. So they started buying short-dated like two-year early in the session and long-dated follows. And if you further look at the fact, let's take a big view and go to January of 21. You'll see that the spike there in March of this year, the high yield close that stood was 507. Now look at where we're at now. Now let's take that same chart and apply it to tens. Their first important cycle high yield close was much earlier in September of last year at four and a quarter. Look at the distance difference from that, from four and a quarter to where we're at now at 491. That is significant. And also consider last week we closed 10-year note yields at 461. They're currently at 491. We're up 30 basis points. We're two years, so the last week at 507. So they're basically unchanged. That means twos to tens moved about 30 basis points. That is the story of the day. Back to you. All right. Thank you, Rick. Rick Santelli. Let's get an investor's take on the market now. Our next guest is changing his fixed income playbook amid rising rates. Is he scooping up long-term treasuries at these levels? Let's ask Ben Kirby. He's co-head of investments and co-portfolio manager at Thornburg. Uh, ben, welcome. It's good to have you here today. Great. Thanks, Kelly. All in on the TLT. I mean, can we even mess with, with bond ETFs or do you got to just own the whole thing to maturity and not go there? I mean, th these, these moves have created perhaps some massive opportunities. Which ones do we need to step in front of? Uh, <clears throat> absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think that uh, there's a lot of pessimism on bonds today. And uh, we think that longer term yields look pretty attractive. Yields at, at 5% um, we think are going to be um, relatively strong total returns um, over the next few years. Basically, in order to be strong total returns, you're saying we avoid uh, the, them going to 6 or 7 or, or 10%. Again, if you hold it to maturity, maybe you don't matter. Maybe you think inflation is not going to be a problem. <clears throat> yeah, I think inflation is coming down. And, you know, even if short-term rates are 5%, um, it's going to be really hard for short-term rates to be 5% for the next 10 years, right? So that's how we think about that 10-year bond, it's an average of the short-term rate over the next 10 years. Tell me, just kind of back it up for a second, 
you know, you're looking across the, the asset classes, as you can do tonight. Where are you most heavily allocated? So we think it makes a lot more sense to be taking fixed income risk today than equity risk, um, simply because of where equity multiples are. Um, if you can get um, high yield credit at a 9% return, that's pretty attractive. That looks a lot like equity-like returns over time with much lower risk. Or you can get corporate credit um, on investment grade at 6.5%, 7%. That also looks pretty attractive. So to us, we've been taking some of our cash and buying duration and taking some of our equity and buying credit. And is that why you also have exposure to, for instance, Biomarin, Alphabet, maybe even Visa? Are these falling rate plays? You know, really, they're, in many cases, idiosyncratic plays. Biomarin has, um, you know, we think a really strong pipeline. They're going to be growing, uh, you know, revenues at a really attractive rate based on recent approvals. And we think they're probably a takeover target in the next year. Um, Alphabet is, is a special case as well. Alphabet is, you know, one of the best businesses in the world. They're an AI beneficiary. They're trading at 20 times earnings. So that's, that's an asset you really want to own uh, for the long term. Uh, so there's, there, there's definitely pockets of the, you know, of the equity market that make a lot of sense. Our view is that overall um, the equity market looks expensive, but again, individual stocks, individual cases, bottom-up investing, we think it just is really the place to be positioned today. Yeah, I see Total in here as well, and that's a, uh, we're going to talk more about the energy space and those yield plays later, but we'll let you go get some tea. Ben, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Ben Thank Kirby you. with Thornburg. If higher rates are the new normal, and maybe they're not, uh, 5% 10-year, is it here to stay? What does it all mean for consumer behavior either way? We're getting some clues from CNBC's latest All-America Economic Survey. Steve Leisman here with those results. Hey, Kelly. Yeah, we tried to drill down into how these higher rates are playing out among the general public. 1,001 respondents to our survey. Let's take a look at their response to what it does relative to paying off or not paying off a credit card debt. And 27% say they're more likely to pay it off. 23% say less likely. For 47%, it makes no difference. And for the rest of this discussion here and the next guest, I want you to remember that 47. That's going to come up a little bit more. We'll go through now. Let's take, more, take, look, take a look more broadly at other aspects of people's potential purchases here. 11% say it makes them more likely. 54% say less likely to buy a car. 52% less likely to get a new credit card. Same with uh, buy, buy a new home, 55% less likely, and also taking out loans, about half. But notice that another chunk of folks not affected. Remember that idea, because we're going to keep going here. What about higher interest rates? Do they help your household? Do they hurt your household? Let's move on and take a look at this data here. 11% actually say it's an advantage, 44% say a disadvantage, and then look at that again. 41% no effect. You see what I'm getting at here, folks? We're trying to figure out why the economy is doing so well and higher interest rates are not biting more. Look at those numbers not affected. Here's a very quick breakdown, by the way, of groups that are relatively more advantaged and less advantaged. Doesn't mean that they're 50% more advantaged, it means they're higher than the average. Um, men over 50, professional managers, those with more than 50,000 invested in the market, those with postgraduate degree and upper class and well-to-do advantage. Disadvantage, well, uh, ages 35 to 40, right in that 49, right in that home buying area, they're disadvantaged. Um, also, uh, income 50 to 75,000, white collar workers, independents, and those with less than 50,000. One more screen here. Take a look, Kelly, at 
the demographic difference between young and old. And you can see there, um, not so much advantage for the older folks, but less effect overall is what you see when you look at that for those who are retired or have, um, you know, living on fixed incomes or, go ahead. Can we show that graphic one more time of who is advantaged? Because I'm right. trying to understand, is this just a very small, who would, maybe people who are, are earning that yield in cash that previously that's couldn't. exactly I, what we're trying to, that's, I can't that's, think of another I way I think that's benefit. the reason. They are, um, we did show that there is, there are fewer people taking advantage in terms of their investment choices when it comes to, not fewer, but not as many as you would think, mm -hmm. but there is a class of people who are. What I think is important, what's really interesting here is there is, there are groups of people who are tremendously stressed out by these high interest rates, but there are also pluralities that seem to be living outside of that universe, right. right, and are not affected. And so I think it's something that over time is going to have an effect, but for vast Big chunks of the economy, the high interest rates are not bugging them right now. Perfect tee up to our next discussion. Um, our next guest is here to talk about why we uh, might not be seeing a bigger impact than expected for some of these groups. Uh, Paul Donovan is chief economist at UBS Global Wealth Management, and he says there is some extra spending power uh, going into 2024. Paul, welcome, because uh, you don't think inflation is biting quite the way the CPI might be indicating. So really, there's a couple things going on here. Steve's talking about why aren't high rates having a bigger impact. You're talking about why isn't measured CPI maybe having as big of an impact. Uh, what do you see going on here? So the thing is, in the United States, one quarter of the inflation basket is a price called owner's equivalent rent. And it's a complete fantasy price. It's a price nobody pays. It's an attempt to measure the price of owning your own home. Uh, and at the moment, it's running at just over 7% a year inflation but nobody actually pays this price. If you are a homeowner in the United States, you either have no mortgage, so zero year-over-year -year inflation, or you're one of the 95% of, of mortgage holders who've locked in your mortgage at a fixed rate, so no inflation. So this fantasy price is pushing up CPI, and the reality for the middle-income family that owns their own home in the United States is their personal inflation is substantially lower. So we're talking about inflation on average in the United States of about one, uh, sorry, about 2% for middle-income homeowners. And in some parts of the United States, cities like Chicago, for example, you're talking about uh, homeowners having an inflation rate of less than 1%. Wow. That's giving you an awful lot of spending firepower. Interesting. And go ahead, Steve. Well, I'm a little bit betwixt in between because I, I feel like I need to explain why we use owner's equivalent rent. And I'm brought back to the nightmare four-hour conference I sat through <laughs> where they debated this issue of whether or not to include actual housing prices or owner's equivalent rent. And what I will tell you, maybe to make the long story short, it's, it's an effort not to include asset prices in the CPI. Right. You can't put the they price of a house. They don't want to put the price of a house because they don't want policy reacting to the actual price. Now, there are people out Couldn't there who argue... Just, here's a question yeah, for you. Why can't they just... They're, they're trying to impute what it would cost to rent your own home. Why can't right. they just survey people and say, what's your mortgage payment? Why can't they just do that and then just use that in the CPI? I mean, I guess they could. Paul, did you say 39% of Americans are sitting with fixed... Uh, fixed cost, which is very close to the 40% of our group that's not affected by higher interest rates. Is that what you had said? Well, you, if you look at homeowners, it's, it's around two-thirds of American households actually own their own home. And of course, you're talking there about people who've either got no mortgage at all, 
in right. which case right. you know, the mortgage cost example would be zero, uh, or people who are paying this fixed rate mortgage. Now, over here in the United Kingdom, we do things differently, and we have variable rate mortgages. And, and so you know, that makes a difference to us. You know, interest rates going up is, is a big problem in the UK. But you guys over in the States, you know, you're living you know, the easy right. life. And I had seen, Paul, I have seen something about the <laughs> average mortgage rate being three and a half to four percent of those who have mortgages. So this gets at a really important issue. And I don't know if Paul wants to talk about this, but it's the effectiveness of monetary policy. And it really gets at this lag question, which is bedeviling the Federal Reserve right now. It speaks to the idea that the lags are, in this case, infinitely longer than they are in the UK or Canada. Right, Paul? Well, exactly. The US is a less interest rate sensitive economy than is the UK or indeed Canada. um, Because fewer people are exposed to the, you know, the random decisions of Fed Chair Powell, um, which, you know, is very good for those American citizens who are immune. But it does mean that Fed policy is a blunter tool than Governor Bailey at the Bank of England is, is wielding over in the UK. Mm-hmm. You know, most people in the UK know who Governor Bailey is because he affects their day-to-day life. Literally, fewer than half the American population know who Fed Chair Powell is. The trouble with this argument, Paul, I'm trying to lead it down different paths here. (laughs) On on the one hand, it suggests to me that the Fed ought to throw this out and really doesn't need to be quite as high right now. That's one conclusion. Wouldn't it argue that they need to be higher because they're not affecting, like he said, the day-to-day kind of mortgage Not if inflation is lower. And those were the two paths that I was going down. Paul, do you want to solve that conundrum right there? What's the right policy reaction to this data? So I think that the the right reaction is to look at what's actually going on in inflation in the United States for many, many people, um, and to recognize that actually the US doesn't have an inflation problem. You can argue it's got a bit of a Florida problem. So inflation in Florida is actually quite high. Inflation in most of the rest of the country isn't. You've got a lot of regional divergence there. And also the fact that when you strip out the owner's equivalent rent, when you look at the underlying, you can look at, for example, the harmonized consumer price inflation figure that is published by uh, the states. That's a rough indication of what's going on. Um, The Fed does look at core inflation ex shelter, which is also a way of, of getting around this you're seeing just the absence of inflation pressures in the real world. And, you know, call me crazy, I think it would be a good idea if Fed Chair Powell lived in the real world when making policy decisions. Paul, the the other problem I have with this conclusion is the survey that we just did shows Americans deeply, deeply troubled by inflation. When we ask what your biggest problem is, absolutely. when we ask what your biggest problem is, it's inflation. When we ask what the biggest stress in your life is, it's inflation. How can you be out there saying that it's not as big a problem when every survey, not just our own, says, you know what? Inflation is the biggest problem. So here's the thing. Consumers are absolutely useless at analyzing or forecasting inflation because (laughs) we all do it. We pay attention to the things we buy frequently. So it's your high frequency purchases which dictate your inflation. So, you know, over here in the UK, if the price of tea goes up, the whole country is in uproar. Over in the United States, if the cost of filling up the family fleet of sports utility vehicles with gasoline is going up, everyone thinks inflation is out of control. Now, in fact, it's not that big a part of your overall family budget, but it's a price that every single week you're reminded of 
And so you get this very, very skewed perception. So when you have rising food and rising fuel prices, as we have had in the States of late, that tends to be the thing that people remember. And they forget about the fact that televisions are just collapsing in price or the fact that car prices are coming down and so on and so forth. They focus on the high frequency purchases. So it gives you this very distorted perception of what's going on. So, Paul, you might be in the camp then, and we're starting to see a little bit of pricing of, um, you know, maybe even a November rate cut. I'm talking like 2%, but uh, would you be comfortable with that? Well, you know, if I was running the Federal Reserve, and sadly with my accent I'm not allowed to do that, I wouldn't have taken rates as far as they've gone. I think the Fed has probably overshot. Uh, I don't think they're going to cut at this stage, though. That's not what we've got, what we're hearing from the Fed. Even with and the labor market, because plenty of people will say jobless claims sub 200, you know. Well, I mean, the, the labor market data has become a lot less reliable. The Bureau of Labor Statistics has been pleading with Congress for years to give them more money to try and improve the quality of the labor market data. We saw some big revisions earlier this year to that. So I think that you know, we've got to be a little bit cautious. We're not seeing massive wage growth. Um, you know, we're not seeing uh, a tightness in the labor market really pushing up cost pressures. Uh, and the, the direction of inflation, which is what the Fed's here to control, I think is clearly downwards. All right. I, I just got to say one remember, more thing, Kelly, which is that Paul made me think that there's a product inflation trigger in every country. Tea in England, gas in the United States, seal skins in Greenland. I don't know. What, what is it? What, you know. Careful you don't trigger more right. than a, right. you know, a revolution here with, that, with these kind of gas price Gas in the United States, tea in England, and every, like rice in some countries, right? I eggs mean, and eggs in America. Yeah. Eggs in America, exactly. too. Exactly. Those are the trigger ones, the people that see but don't under, see the rest of it. Paul, a pleasure. Thank you so much for making the time today. We really appreciate it. Paul Donovan and, as always, our very own Steve Leisman. Let's get to shares of Amex, American Express, having their worst day since March, although the decline's only about 3% right now, after the company only essentially reaffirmed its full-year guidance in its report this morning, despite posting a 36-cent earnings beat and seeing a 7% jump in card members spending year-on-year. Year. As for its outlook, it's boosting provisions for card losses to a billion two, up ne nearly 60% from last year, and that's similar to what we heard from Discover Financial, whose own shares were down sharply yesterday. Amex is now trading at its lowest level of the Year and is the biggest point drag on the Dow today, subtracting about 40 points, a little less right now. Uh, speaking of which, today's consumer stat is that 51%, about half of U.S. consumers, plan to spend more than $500 this holiday shopping season. And that's actually a 15% increase from a year ago, according to a new report from TransUnion. Coming up, it's not just bonds. Energy stocks have some pretty good-looking dividend yields. Up next, we'll tell you which ones as the XLE ETF tries to hang on to its fifth straight monthly gain, its longest stretch in more than two years. Plus, we're closing out our consumer week with a look at higher rates on Main Street. How are small businesses dealing with tighter lending standards? And what, if anything, can the Fed do to help? We'll ask President Biden's former NEC deputy director, Dow's Down 102. Selling smoothies is what I do. But for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. He's a small business owner, too, so he knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. Brought to you by Eden Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eden Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at EdenVance.com slash CNBC. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses.
The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Welcome back to The Exchange. Oil back above $90 a barrel today for the first time in two and a half weeks. And while bond yields are looking more and more attractive to investors, some energy stocks could be even more appealing as well. Pippa Stevens has a look in today's sectornomics. Pippa? Hey, Kelly. Well, the competition for yields is getting tougher following the 10 years rise. But energy has traditionally been a place that income-seeking investors have looked. Now, starting here with the two largest companies, Exxon and Chevron, both are dividend aristocrats, meaning they've raised their dividends for each of the last 25 years. That includes during the pandemic, despite the historic drop in oil prices. Both have a roughly 3% dividend yield, with Chevron's a bit higher than Exxon's. But for data around which companies in the S&P energy sector have historically had the highest payout, we turn to Y charts. Pipeline companies One Oak and Kinder Morgan have averaged the highest yield over the last three years at more than 6%. Williams and Devon are also big payers. Now, energy stocks are still underperforming the broader market this year, but the turnaround we saw during Q3 has extended, and the XLE is up about 9% in the last three months, while the SPY is down just shy of 6%. Kelly? All right, Pippa, thanks. Will rising geopolitical risk push oil even higher from here, or is it priced in now? Let's ask Andy Lippo, president of Lippo Oil Associates. Andy, welcome to you. What's your gut say? Well, I think a lot of it has been priced in. We always see the oil market with its knee-jerk reaction to events in the Middle East. But as of now, there still has been no supply disruption. And the greatest fear is that Iran gets dragged into the conflict and results in either their oil being taken off the market or the Strait of Hormuz being closed. All right. So if you think that this is kind of a it's interesting how lately when I talk to specialists in their sectors, you know, you on energy people in the Treasury markets, they all say these moves are overdone. And yet sometimes they keep on going. Well, we've seen other things happening in the oil market, namely that the U.S. has sanctioned a number of vessels that were carrying Russian oil. And that's leading the oil market to think that perhaps we'll take a stricter line towards those uh, tankers. In addition, the market thinks that perhaps we will take a stricter view of the sanctions on Iran because Iran has increased their exports to over 2 million barrels a day. And the administration is really looking the other way because they're so focused on gasoline prices. And this is also happening at the same time that the Department of Energy is now issuing uh, solicitations to purchase oil to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Right. I think the key stat here is you say the loss of 2 million barrels a day, uh, let's say from Iran, would increase prices 10 to $14 per barrel or 25 to 35 cents at the gas pump. So a, a, a hit, but you wonder if it's a, a hit worth taking given uh, everything that's happened. Well, I think we have to look at it in a bigger context that if Iranian oil was taken off the market, what kind of retaliation steps would they take? Would they start to seize vessels transiting in the strait? Or would they try to actually shut down all of the oil trans transiting and much of the exports from Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Iraq are transiting through that strait as well? So you could see a much wider conflict developing if Iran lost its access completely to the oil markets. 
That's why I think the probability is quite low that the strait would be shut down. Right. So then that leaves us back with, you know, po possibly range bo uh, bound oil. And also what what would you say is the dollar amount of geopolitical premium that's probably in the price per barrel right now? Right now, I think it's about five dollars a barrel is the premium in there. I think that when we look around the world, oil demand continues to increase. We've seen the forecast from not only the International Energy Agency, but OPEC suggesting higher demand is ahead. And this is happening at the same time that OPEC Plus continues with its production cuts, most notably the voluntary production cuts from Saudi Arabia and Russia, which I believe are going to continue into 2024. All right. Andy is always able to kind of gauge things out for us at a time like this. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Andy Lipow with Lipow Oil Associates. Uh, still to come after a quick break, we'll tell you what movers we're seeing in the market. And we're also about to enter the busiest week of earnings season with Alphabet and Microsoft on Tuesday, Meta Wednesday, Amazon Thursday. What the options market says about their results, that's coming up in Tech Check. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to the exchange. Markets are off session lows. Dow is still down 125. S&P about two thirds of a percent. NASDAQ a little more than that. And watch the S&P in particular today because it dipped below its 200 day moving average already for the first time since March. 42.33 is the number to watch. There were about 20 points above it in the trade. A lot of people wouldn't want to see it below that for the close. And a number of financials are hitting 52 week lows today. Morgan Stanley after its rough earnings yesterday. Goldman, those are now positive again. Look at regions, though, down 11 percent for its worst since the pandemic after an earnings miss in a Q4 warning. Discover down to its lowest level in two and a half years, building on yesterday's decline. Consumer discretionary among the worst sectors today, and the ETF there is on pace for its third straight week and month of losses. Its relative strength is just 32 right now. Below 30 is considered oversold. You can see it is well below its 200-day moving average there in orange. And the Invesco NASDAQ Next Gen 100 ETF, the Triple QJ, hitting its lowest level since December. The more widely traded Triple Qs ain't faring so well today either, and that's because Apple is is the largest holding, and that stock is on track for its sixth straight day of losses, its biggest losing streak in nearly two years. Over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. Trump campaign legal advisor Kenneth Chesbro has now pleaded guilty to a felony conspiracy charge in the Georgia 2020 election interference case, and he did it earlier this afternoon. The Trump attorney struck a deal with prosecutors. Chesbro now faces five years probation, a $5,000 fine, community service, and he must cooperate with the state in the case going forward. Chesbro was one of the 19 people charged in the case, including former President Donald Trump. The White House requested more than $105 billion in aid from Congress to support security needs in Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and notably along the U.S. southern border. 61 billion of that request is slated for Ukraine. President Biden made the case for aid in his Thursday night address to the nation, saying the money will help keep American troops out of harm's way and build a safer world. 
But the House won't even be able to take up this aid request unless it elects a speaker. Didn't do that. During the House's third vote today, Congressman Jim Jordan unable to secure the uh, 217 votes needed to win the speakership. Jordan earned just 194 down from prior tallies. The GOP now voting on secret ballot on whether Jordan should remain the nominee. Kelly, back to you. Let's get more on that, Tyler. Thanks. A quick update on the search for a House speaker. Our Emily Wilkins reporting the GOP right now is voting on secret ballot on whether Jordan should remain the nominee. Of course, we've also heard some concerns from McHenry uh, about being empowered versus maybe voted more formally into the role. We'll continue to bring you any further updates. Coming up, we're closing out our Consumer Week with a look at how higher rates are hurting small business. Is this where layoffs could first start to pick up? We will explore after the break. Welcome back. Fed Chair Powell said yesterday that monetary policy may still not be tight enough, and various Fed presidents reveal the division of opinion at the Fed over what to do next. Atlanta's Raphael Bostic telling Squawk Box the Fed needs to be cautious and patient. Loretta Mester just last hour stuck to her more hawkish stance, leaving the possibility of a November hike still on the table. Meanwhile, Philly Fed President Patrick Harker is sounding the alarm about Main Street, saying bankers are telling him that some small businesses won't be viable if the Fed hikes further. And according to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, 70 percent of small businesses say rising rates are already limiting their ability to raise capital. For the final installment of our special consumer coverage this week, we're joined by Seth Harris, senior fellow at the Northeastern University Burns Center for Social Change and former deputy director of the White House Economic Council. It's great to have you here. Welcome. And what uh, insight can you help shed on uh, this situation for us? Well, I, I'm in the cautious and patient uh, camp here. I am worried about small businesses and I'm worried about workers who could be laid off by small businesses. You know, small businesses, Kelly, are very thinly capitalized. They have to rely fairly heavily on their credit lines in order to be able to do business. As the cost of credit has gone up, that has caused a lot of them to retrench. It may be that some of them are spending out of savings. And that's a concern because that can't go on forever. Right now, they seem to have found an equilibrium. As you said earlier in the show, we have not seen a big bump up in initial weekly unemployment claims, which is a pretty good proxy for layoffs. So we're not seeing widespread layoffs from small businesses. But I want to see the Fed wait, slow down, see what happens, give things a chance to develop. Monetary yeah. policy tends to develop slowly. Mm-hmm. Let's see how it develops. So I think a lot of people don't realize what a big impact on the labor market small businesses have. And there was some great work done by Aneta Markowska, who used to be at Jefferies, but basically indicating all of the excess hiring and excess job openings from the pandemic the last couple of years came from small businesses. So my concern is if that is now reversing and if that's receding, Uh, that we could start to see layoffs there first and then it kind of eventually undermining the strength of the economy. I share that concern. I don't think we have yet seen a turn in the opposite direction. We're still seeing good, solid, moderate job growth. We got a big, surprising bump last month. But I I am concerned that we are going to begin to see small businesses really retrenching simply because they don't have the resources to be able to go forward. They've done fairly well. They have hung on. The labor market has hung on because of that. Right. But if we see a turn in the opposite direction, I think it's going to hurt workers and small businesses. Do you think it's unusual that it's taken this long or do you have any theories as to why it has? 
You know, my my theory about the labor market is that employers are hugging their workers as close as they can because they remember a time, and it may be this time, where they had a lot of trouble finding workers, workers with the requisite skills to do the jobs that they needed. I think that's true both of large businesses and small businesses. So in other times, they might well have laid their workers off, confident they'd be able to find replacements. But you know, we have this weird situation where growth is slowing, inflation is coming down, but we're not seeing a loosening of the labor market. Mm -hmm. A little bit, you know, we're seeing worker power decline a little bit, but so far, there's still a very tight labor market and it's hard to find workers. I don't think employers want to gamble on that. They're hugging their employees. I, I, like, uh, I like to think about that. Seth, thanks so much. We appreciate you joining us today. Seth Harris. Still to come, tech will go from small to big. Uh, big tech is getting hit again today, and the big names reporting next week include Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, and Meta, all among the 10 having the biggest drag on the NASDAQ 100 today. We'll see what the options market is expecting from these results next. And tech is underperforming today, but consumer discretionary is having the worst week. Tech is the third worst, and rounding out the bottom five, real estate, industrials, and materials. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Several big tech names report earnings next week, including Alphabet, Microsoft, Meta, and Amazon. And with the Magnificent Seven under pressure as rates continue their climb, let's check in with what the options market is signaling. For today's edition of Tech Check, Chris Murphy is here. He's Susquehanna's co-head of derivative strategy, along with our very own Deirdre Bosa. I'm going to build the suspense to Chris uh, for just a moment, Deirdre. Give us a sense of where you think investors or Silicon Valley are most focused. So for each company, it's going to be different. But as a whole, and we always talk about this when earnings season comes up, these are such big parts of the broader market that a miss from any one of these four names next week could take you know markets down with it. So it's really critical. However, expectations are pretty good. I mean, these companies are more like flywheels. They're platforms with many different businesses, and they're almost seen as defensive stocks in this kind of environment. They've had a tougher second half of the year, but year-to-date, they're still holding up the best. They've still led the markets higher this year. So different things for different companies, but maybe one thread that will be the same for all four of them is their AI promise versus the economics of artificial intelligence. Two very different things. The first half of the year characterized by the hype and promise. Now it's the economics. Investors are going to look for more signs of monetization, um, spending. AI is very, very expensive in terms of those compute costs. And for the cloud, the hyperscalers, Microsoft and Amazon, investors want to know that that growth has bottomed out, especially for Amazon, and that it's picking back up. And that's related to their AI propositions as well. All right. So drum roll, please. Chris, what do you see in the options markets? Uh, which are going to have the biggest moves? Well, you, you kind of nailed it with the whole defensive argument. So you're seeing a little bit of a flight to quote unquote safety in these names. So the implied moves are actually um, on the lower end compared to what you usually expect to see because of that flight to safety kind of a nature. Um, if one uh, implied move looks a little bit cheap, I would look towards meta. Um, you know, it's implying about a 10% move, which might seem uh, relatively high, but if you compare how it's moved the last couple, um, that's on the lower end. But, you know, the main takeaway is um, overwriting 
strategy in those names, selling the upside, saying even if we do you know, come in stronger on earnings, we're not expecting much of an explosive move while there's so many other overhangs going on in the broader market right now. So that's been the general strategy that we've been seeing into these earnings events. And anything you'd add, Chris, that investors might want to think about, um, you know, kind of outside risks or just maybe broad market risks? Well, you know, the, ten, the, the Treasury yield and uh, the situation in the Middle East, that's definitely overshadowing these earnings. Uh, we're seeing correlations in general move higher. So all these stocks are starting to move together at a time when they should be moving on their own individual earnings merits. So, you know, certainly the, the worst, you know, fear for one of these names is to have a pretty decent earnings, but have the whole entire rest of the market um, selling off for something that's out of their control. All right. Deirdre, quick last word. Um, I liked what Bernstein said this morning that Google or Alphabet is the warm hug of big tech earnings. It's sort of the least controversial name. And while it is sort of subject to AI hype and promise and economics, really that advertising model that makes up so much of its revenue remains sort of the thing that long onlys really look to. And it's been more resilient than some of the players like Snap and Meta. So the warm hug. I'll leave you with that, Kelly, a warm hug. How about that? <laughs> we went from hugging our employees to the now a warm <laughs> This is just a lovely show. Uh, thank you both. We really appreciate it. Chris Murphy and Deirdre Bosa. Still ahead, newly public companies aren't often mentioned as defensive plays. Here it is again. But one trader has three she's buying in anticipation of a slowdown, including this one, three bucks off its debut price. What's our mystery chart? Tweet me at Kelly CNBC. And her one name she's avoiding, we'll reveal it next. Welcome back. Investors are buzzing about the reopening of the IPO pipeline, but is it the right kind of buzz? A lot of the recent debuts have fallen flat. Arm, Birkenstock, Clavio, all below their debut prices. My next guest says there's a few names she's buying, though, for some defense here. Joining me now is Gina Sanchez, Lido Advisors Chief Market Strategist. Three IPOs to buy, one to bail on. She's also a CNBC contributor. Joining us from Japan, no less. So if I knew how to say hello in Japanese, I would. Uh, but Gina, welcome. Uh, let's start with Kenview, which went public in May after its spinoff from Johnson & Johnson, of course. Um, those shares have been widely under pressure since the debut. What would you do with the stock here? Look, this stock is a stock that is one of the few IPOs that's actually trading cheap relative to its long-term value, and that's because of the Tylenol suit. But if you look at the price drop, it's just too big relative to the liability that they could be taking on. And so we just see this as a buy right now. You're being rewarded for that risk. All right. Well, that's pretty straightforward, even if it might you know, give people a, a nervous uh, tummy to think about. What about Sabres Value Village? That one just went public at the end of, the, of June, kind of under the radar. It was a little bit below the recent uh, hoopla. Shares are down 36% from that opening trade, but only a couple dollars below the $18 IPO price. Piper Sandler says Gen Z and millennials are keeping thrifting alive with thrift talk, which SVB, uh, VV can benefit from. Do you agree? I completely agree on that. And actually, these, this, this, is a, you know, this is a thrift that's playing into a trend, um, but it is also a kind of one of those areas where, you know, in a defensive moment when you're trying to think about what you want to spend on, um, if you want to save money, this is a place people go. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's not only a place people go, it's cheap and it's trendy. How often do you get that? 
All right. So Savers Value Village as well. Um, the next one. Uh, OK, Chris, it's a little older than some of the other ones, but it's Krispy Kreme, which went public in July of 2021, more than two years ago. It's also down 40 percent from its opening price, which was below its IPO price of $17. J.P. Morgan is still overweight on the stock. They say they're honing in with their hub and spoke strategy to drive sales. But I look at it and I'm like, I don't know, in the era of, uh, of GLPs and everything, what would you do here? You know, look, th this, this is not the healthiest play, but it is a high margin play. And one of the reasons that they're down is because they have been spending quite a bit of money expanding the franchise. So there's a lot of investment money going into Krispy Kreme. Ultimately, this is a very high margin play. And so we think in the long run, um, this is interesting. You have wages still growing above inflation right now. And we don't know how long that will last, but we know that when you pump dollars into, lo into the lowest socioeconomic strata, you know, they will buy items that are very, very easy and cheap. And a donut is easy and cheap. All right. I thought they were spinning out uh, impossible cookies, too, if I'm not mistaken. You know, that's that. But anyway, we'll say that for neither here or there. Um, so here, those are the three that you would be buyers of. The one you're bailing on is Instacart, which those shares are actually higher today uh, by about 4%. The stock went public last month, priced at 30 uh, and, and opened at 42. It's down 14% since. City gave it a buy rating this week, saying the online grocery space is 12% of overall e-commerce and they could benefit from all of their partnerships with top grocers. Why wouldn't you stick with this one? So I think a lot of the any positive sentiment you hear is about total addressable market, how large the market is. But this is also a market that is very crowded. You have DoorDash, you have Uber. Um, the margins on this are extremely thin. Now we made it that far. You know, we're trying to try you know, to go ahead. Go ahead, Gina, for your final comment. Yeah, that groceries shopping is going to be something that you just are not going to be willing to pay for in right. a slowing market. All right. You still bull are, you, are you bullish Japan after the trip? Everyone else is. <laughs> so I'm here about that. So I will tell you in a week. Very good. Doing some uh, shoe leather reporting, some channel checks. Gina, thank you so much today. We appreciate your time. Gina Sanchez with Lido Advisors. That does it for us with a Dow down 129 points. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Jake from State Farm here, hanging out with Mel's Mow and Grow. Mel chose State Farm for small business insurance because his local agent is a small business owner too. So she knew how to help him personalize his policies. And now he's rolling in the green. Like a, like a good neighbor. Guys, I'm trying to do the line. Oh, sorry, Jake. It's all good. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.